You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. It's the buzzing, ringing or whistling sensation in the ears that up until the pandemic affected around one in ten of us long term. Now, new research from the British Tinnitus Association has revealed the impact that COVID-19 has had on the level of suffering of people affected by tinnitus. Nick Ray is from the charity behind the study. We now know that over 7 million adults in the UK have tinnitus and that number is rising. And we also know that the whole COVID situation seems to have been making people's tinnitus worse and actually having the infection can trigger tinnitus too. It's also been recognised by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence as a symptom of long COVID. Nick, what do scientists know about the relationship between COVID and tinnitus? drilled down far enough but we do know that tinnitus results from some kind of change either physical or mental and not necessarily related to hearing and so common causes can be hearing loss or exposure to loud noise but stress and anxiety is also a major factor and you know we're all in a very stressful time even if we think we're dealing with things rationally and well our bodies are sometimes going actually no hang on wait a minute and so physical or mental changes perhaps from having the infection can result in a change in the amount of information sent from the ear to the brain and that can sort of become a bit overloaded almost so the tinnitus sound is this brain activity. How close are we to finding a cure for tinnitus? I think we're closer than we have been but we're still a way away and sadly currently there is no cure. And a lot of the research that has been done has been really the good basic building blocks and we've invested heavily just this year in more research, in fact more than we've ever invested before and hopefully bring us closer to a cure and bring us closer to having more effective management techniques. I understand the petition of 100,000 people you presented to government last year calling for additional funding for tinnitus research is receiving the consideration it deserves. As you say, a cure is still some way away. So what can we do to help ourselves manage tinnitus? Well, there are lots of techniques you can try to help manage your tinnitus. It's a bit of a mix and match finding things that work for you as an individual because tinnitus is a very individual condition. But some of the ones that people might want to try are relaxation exercises, whether that's breathing or progressive muscle relaxation for example, meditation, some gentle exercise, you know, our daily walk is great. Using background noise, particularly in quiet environments, so if you're working from home or you're struggling to sleep, but it also can really help to access support. Now that's available through ourselves, the British Tinnitus Association, through our website and our helpline. We've got online support groups so you can get support from other people. But talking to your GP as well can help. Tinnitus services are still happening despite sort of lockdown and the pandemic and your GP can signpost you and refer you to more specialist tinnitus support too. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. 
Research shows one in three women over the age of 25 suffer from hair loss, with serious thinning a problem for 4.8 million women across the UK. A third of the women polled said hair loss made them depressed, while a quarter said their personal lives had been affected. Lucas Sokar is a hair loss expert and founder of Hair Solved. Hair loss can be caused by virtually anything. The most common cause of hair loss is basically hormonal imbalance, which can be triggered by a number of different reasons. Stress or traumas in your life are named as the most common major event like childbirth or an accident can trigger hair loss on both medical and psychological level. Now, on a medical level, we have conditions like, for instance, alopecia areata or telogen effluvium, basically, which is a disruption to the hair's growth cycle. Now, on a psychological level, they're all closely linked to stress. We have trichotillomania, where people pull their hair out, mainly to get a feeling of stress relief. Of course, on top of that, we have genetic conditions. Their hair is genetically fine, and as they get older, it gets finer and finer, sheds more, and that causes hair loss. On top of that, we have uh, chemotherapy treatments, radiotherapy treatments, where people lose their hair while going through those treatments, and obviously things like accidents, burns, etc. Lucas, is there anything that can be done from a dietary perspective? Is there a medical intervention? Unfortunately, there's no medical solution for hair loss. When there is one, we will all know about it. It will be the next big thing. It will be all over the media. So there's no potion, no lotion. You can rub in your scalp to to make your hair grow back. There's no tablet you can take, unfortunately. So the only way forward are cosmetic solutions. So what can you do? Obviously, healthy diet helps. Very often, hair loss is linked to iron deficiency. Also, decreasing levels of stress. Hair loss is closely linked to stress. It very often becomes a vicious circle. You lose your hair for any reason, but then you worry about it so much that you keep losing more and more. So it's like a self-perpetuating condition. We've spoken on Word on Health before about the dangers of self-prescribing and seeking help via the likes of the internet for assistance with any kind of hair loss. If you're concerned, where should your first port of call be? Your first call should be your GP because they can refer you to a specialist, which in this case would be a dermatologist. Many people try to just find a specialist themselves online. There are many people advertising themselves as trichologists for various kind and not always they are in position to comment on hair loss properly. So I would definitely say first your GP and then dermatologist specialist. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's estimated that as many as 6 million people across the UK have a fear of needles. Recent research indicates 15% would avoid vaccinations because of the severity of their fears. Dr. Carol Cooper is a GP and medical journalist. Needle phobia can be because people are afraid of the pain from the needle, but it can also be a completely involuntary bodily reaction. People don't know that they're afraid of the needle, and as soon as they have a jab or a vaccination, they keel over. Adult men are particularly prone to do this. It's likely to have different causes in different people. For some people, perhaps the older generation, they may have had a particularly unpleasant experience with a needle in the olden days when needles weren't quite so well made as they are now. For young children, they're just afraid because it's fear of the unknown. 80% of needle phobics actually have other needle phobics in their family. So whether it's because parents' attitudes rub off on the children or because it's possibly a genetic element, nobody's really quite sure. So, Carol, what steps can we take to overcome our fear of needles? The best thing to do with needle phobia is not to tell the person to pull their socks up and grit their teeth and just get on with it because, actually, that doesn't help at all. I think it's essential to really prepare a needle phobia person well before their procedure to explain what's going to happen, to be calm and to take time. And then when it comes to the procedure itself, to get them to lie down if there's any likelihood of fainting because, actually, you can't faint lying down. So it's important to tell 
the clinician that you're afraid of needles and to let them know what helps you. Thinking of the routine vaccinations for children and their fears, what advice would you offer parents? For a small child, they might want to take a teddy, a soft toy. You might want to help them look at something on an opposite wall that's of interest or counting with them, telling them nursery rhymes, even singing to them. All those things can really help. And there's also local anaesthetic creams that help numb the pain and and those can be bought in advance over the counter from pharmacies. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's a painful condition that's thought to affect as many as 10 million people across the UK, which recent research with over 2,000 people shows only 4% of us have ever heard of, and 36% wrongly believe is contagious. Sue Farrington is from the charity SRUK. Raynaud's phenomenon, as it's called, is a circulatory disorder. It's where the blood supply to the extremities is affected. So that's fingers, toes ears, nose and even nipples. The small blood vessels in the extremities become extremely sensitive to changes in temperature or even we found stress can bring on what's called a Raynaud's attack. The first signs that you may notice are when your fingers and toes are feeling very, very cold. You may notice colour changes in the affected areas. They can go white and then go to blue and red. And a lot of people experience numbness, tingling or pain in the fingers and toes. And then as they start to warm up, there's a real kind of stinging or throbbing pain that happens. And I think one of the best ways to paint a picture is to say, imagine plunging your hands through the ice of a frozen pond and leaving them in the water for several minutes. Then take them out and run them under a really hot tap and then the searing pain that you would feel as your fingers are kind of recovering to those extremes of temperature is something that people with Raynaud's phenomenon frequently experience. So you can imagine just how painful that is. And while you are experiencing that, it makes some of the ordinary everyday activities really difficult to do. Sue, where are we at in understanding what causes Raynaud's? We're not very far in. There is thought that there may be a hereditary link, but that's not the only issue here, and that there are maybe environmental triggers that bring this on. But no, in terms of understanding the cause, which is why we don't have a cure, we're still a long way off. When it comes to when Raynaud's first presents, do we have any clue as to whether it's more prevalent in men or women? Is it a condition that only affects older people? It's not age-specific, so anyone of any age can develop primary Raynaud's. It's quite rare in young children, but more common in teenagers. It often is troublesome in those kind of teenage years and then may subside and not return. For those where it comes on later in life, it certainly affects far more women than men, I would say, two-thirds to a third. What about self-help measures that enable people living with Raynaud's to lessen the burden of the condition? There are a number of things that people can do to kind of minimise the frequency of attacks. And some of those things are quite simple and basic, such as making sure that your hands are warm before you put on gloves to go outside, wearing many layers rather than one thick item, and with your hands maybe wearing a pair of thin gloves before you put on an extra thick pair of gloves. There has been identified a link between smoking and Raynaud's attacks. 
given it's a disorder of the circulation system, gentle exercise can help improve the circulation. And then there's other things that you can guard against. So if you want to kind of get anything out of the fridge, we often say to people, if you are prone to quite serious attacks, make sure that you wear insulated gloves. And these are lots of hints and tips that our community is sharing online. We'll have a link from the wordonhealth.com website to enable listeners to access those tips on Raynos from your community. In these days when we're being encouraged to only approach our GPs when absolutely necessary, when should we be talking to our family doctor about Raynos? I would say that if you are having regular bouts of this where your hands are going from white to blue and then to red, you may also start to get ulcers on your fingertips and then you absolutely must go and see your GP because there are drug therapies that can be provided when you go on to have those more severe symptoms, it can be a sign of an underlying autoimmune condition, scleroderma. And although that's very rare and currently affects around about 12,000 people in the UK, this is a condition that can affect different organs in your body. And so it's really important that you have that identified before any fibrosis or scarring of the tissue occurs. Word on health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.